0: the murder of cecil mills hello and welcome to a podcast about one of the most dramatic and tragic events in the history of new south wales prisons this was the murder of officer cecil mills at emu plains in 1959 and the resulting manhunt for his killers this podcast has been specially prepared for remembrance day 2019 which is the 60th anniversary of the tragedy it's dedicated to the memory of officer mills and to all our staff who risked their lives doing what he did and keeping the community safe. I'm Michael Duffy, director of the Corrective Services media unit and author of a number of true crime books. The following story has been compiled from a wide range of original sources. In the past, there were far more escapes from prisons than today. And in some cases, they involved violence. In 1958, a year before our story begins, Warder Alan Cooper, and officers then were known as Warders, was killed by inmates during an unsuccessful escape attempt at Bathurst. 1959 was even worse. Two warders were killed in separate incidents. Albert Hedges, aged 44, was struck down by inmates fleeing Berrimer Prison Farm on the 29th of May. Two 19-year-old inmates hit him on the head with a shovel and fractured his skull. They stole a car and drove to Taralga near Goulburn where it ran out of petrol. Then they stole a ute until it too ran out of fuel just north of Bigger. From there they ran into heavy bush north of Crookwell. While Alfred Hedges languished in Berrimo District Hospital in a critical condition, police hunted his attackers in heavy bushland. More than a hundred police combed the area, some on horseback, and some reportedly armed with machine guns. The weather was desperately cold. Police were assisted by a helicopter, the first time a chopper had been used in a manhunt in New South Wales. The prisoners broke into a farmhouse to steal food, clothing and a rifle. After five days on the run the prisoners were caught, charged and convicted of various offences including inflicting grievous bodily harm. They were sentenced to a further seven years prison. The unfortunate Albert Hedges survived, at least for a while. Following rehabilitation, he eventually did return to work but had to retire on medical grounds. In 1961 he was awarded £4,800 in the Workers' Compensation Court, but he died soon after. The Rose Garden outside Berrimer Correctional Centre is dedicated to his memory. A few months after the Berrimer escape in August 1959, a 24-year-old criminal named Kevin Simmons was sentenced to 15 years prison for three charges of armed robbery, 17 of breaking and entering and 35 of car stealing. The judge who sentenced him said this. Your cleverness,
1: cunning and the skill with which you eluded capture ...sure that you could have made a success of almost anything you chose to do.
0: According to police, after Simmons was sentenced, he boasted they won't be able to hold me. He was held at Long Bay along with a younger cook named Les Newcomb, a 20-year-old who'd just been sentenced to three years for some relatively minor crimes. The two were due to be transferred to Bathurst and agreed to try to escape together beforehand. Now at Long Bay, inmates could attend an old film once a week in the even older prison chapel. One Saturday, while waiting for their transfer, Newcomb and Simmons were sitting in a pew and noticed a cold wind coming into the room. They identified the source as a ventilator in the wall of the chapel. What's on the other side of this church? Kevin asked. Newcomb didn't know, but the two discussed it that night. They were sharing a cell because they bribed a sweeper to change the cell cards around. Simmons wondered whether the ventilator might be a way out. A few days later, an officer was looking for inmates to clean up the chapel and Newcomb kindly volunteered. While in there, he examined the ventilator, which was about 60 centimetres square and made of thin metal. It had louvers, which were easy to bend. Looking inside, he saw a hole in the 30 centimetre thick sandstone wall, with what looked like an identical ventilator cover on the far side. Now he had to find out what was outside the wall. The only window looking out that way was of stained glass. You can broke a small hole in it with a mop handle and saw an empty yard outside with a wall around it. On the far side of the wall lay the superintendent's house, which was actually outside the prison. Next to the house was a garage with a car usually parked there. They'd found their possible way out. The pair stole a four-pound hammer from a workshop. On 9 October, on their way back from showers, they broke open the door to the chapel and ducked inside. There was an armed warder in a tower less than 40 metres away, but unfortunately he was looking the other way. The inmates broke through the ventilator with the help of the stolen hammer and they squeezed through the hole, ran across the yard and stacked some oil drums they found against the wall. They climbed over, dropping seven metres on the other side. Once in the superintendent's grounds, they forced open the door of the garage and tried to steal the car inside. But a water came up the road, so they ran off and jumped over the low outer wall. The water, along with another they passed, didn't chase them and nor did the water in a distant tower open fire. The men stole a car and drove in the direction of Botany Cemetery. A police search had begun and a police launch and another vessel patrolled the coast to make sure the escapees didn't get away by boat. Meanwhile, an army helicopter swept the skies. The duo hid in the cemetery till nightfall, burying themselves in sand and then tried to make their way back to the city. But there were police everywhere. Eventually, they worked their way up the coast to Maruba where they stole a car at 2am. The pair decided to hide out at the showground at Moore Park in one of the big pavilions they used then for the annual Royal Easter Show. At other times of the year, the pavilions were used to store goods piled to the rafters, and the plan was to make a hideout somewhere inside. Newcomb knew this because, as a kid, he'd played in the showground illegally. Now they abandoned their stolen car in Paddington, wiped it of fingerprints, and got over the wall into the showground. They found the pig pavilion packed with big bags of corn Using timber and pipes, they built themselves a small hideout inside one of the stacks. The idea was to stay there for a few weeks until the search died down and then contact friends for assistance. They knew that at the moment, the police would be watching everyone they knew in case they did try to make contact. A few days later, there was a military tattoo at the showground attracting 38,000 people. Simmons and Newcomb didn't dare venture from their tiny hideout for three whole days. The police told the newspapers that Simmons was a violent and reckless man who might use a gun if cornered. This was standard police practice during manhunts because it prepared the public in case the escapee ended up shot. But in Simmons' case it was true. A former inmate told the Sydney Morning Herald, Simmons, or Simo as some called him, was the fittest criminal in Sydney who would fight it out if cornered. Police described Simmons as the mastermind of the escape, saying that Newcombe was easily led. Early in the morning of Sunday, 11 October, Simmons and Newcomb killed Warder Cecil Mills at Emu Plains Training Centre. Mills was a mild mannered bloke. He'd been born in Newtown. He'd worked as a carpenter and a cabinet maker before joining the prison service. He was now 42 years old and lived with his wife Nellie in George Street, Springwood, in the Lower Blue Mountains. They had no children. Newcomb had been an inmate at Emu Plains previously and Simmons and he decided to steal a car in the city and drive all the way out to Western Sydney so they could raid the storeroom. It was a long way to go so far for supplies and it suggests they were getting desperate. They dared not contact friends for support in case someone talked to police. They planned to assault the lone officer they knew would be at the prison during the night, steal his pistol so they could use it later for armed holdups. At Emu Plains, Water Mills was on duty alone with all the inmates locked in their cells. The escapees confronted him and proceeded to beat him to death before he could even pull his pistol from its holster. Simmons used a baseball bat from the storeroom and Newcomb had a cricket stump. It was a brutal attack. Mills never got to draw his gun. They could have grabbed him and tied him up, but instead they chose to beat him to death. The evidence showed they smashed in his skull and left him lying in what the judge later described as literally a river of blood. They stole Mill's pistol and supplies and used his car, his own car, to drive back to Sydney. When an officer on the night watch at Emu Plains made his rounds, it was called doing his pegs because he had to put a device like a peg into machines, they were a bit like Bundy clocks, that were positioned around the centre. Former officer Peter Cook told me that his father, who was also an officer, had been on duty in the watch just before Cecil Mills. He was told that when Mills failed to make the next round, some of the inmates actually banged on doors and bars in an attempt to alert staff living in nearby residences. But it didn't work, and the body of Officer Mills was not found until a dairy supervisor arrived just before the dawn. When news of the murder spread, across Sydney police leave was cancelled and squads of heavily armed detectives began to raid buildings around the city. At first, they didn't know who had killed Mills, but soon Simmons' fingerprint was found at the scene. Police now began to follow up what would turn out to be hundreds of false leads. They were provided by credulous or mischievous informants and members of the general public. One lot of police raced to Burwood Station to search a train. Another squad raided a factory in Roundwick because a woman was sure she'd seen the pair climbing through a window. Later that day, Premier Joe Carl had an emergency meeting with the Attorney-General and the Minister for Justice and also the police commissioner. And that night, the government announced a 1,000 pound reward for information leading to the recapture of the two killers. Meanwhile, Cecil Mills was buried at Springwood Cemetery. His headstone reads, In sacred memory of my beloved husband Cecil Mills, aged 42 years, put to rest 13 October 1959. The Attorney General promised an investigation into the escape from Long Bay, in particular looking at whether any staff were culpable. He was thinking in particular of those officers who'd actually witnessed the fleeing men at Long Bay and done nothing to stop them. Meanwhile, police continued their searches. At Rambic Racecourse, mounted police joined others, looking through dense, 10-metre high lantana. They had their weapons ready at all times. One senior officer told the press, these men are desperate and will stop at nothing. Other police responded to sightings at a shop in Cronulla, the rocks near Bondi Baths, the tram depot at Moore Park, and Stanmore Railway Station. On Tuesday, there was a change in police strategy, with the government offering a free pardon to the accomplice of the killer of Cecil Mills. Clearly, this was intended to encourage one of the two escapees to turn himself in and inform on the other. Presumably, as another part of the strategy, police told the press that Newcombe was not prone to violence, in fact, they said they wouldn't be surprised if he left Simmons and gave himself up. In fact, the police had no solid leads. They were now chasing reported sightings as far afield as Canberra and even Queensland. There was speculation the killers might be holding a family hostage in their own home at gunpoint. And people who saw their neighbours' milk or newspapers uncollected rang the cops. A police search centre was set up at the training depot in Burke Street, Redfern. Back at Long Bay and in Parliament, the blame game continued. The Public Service Association claimed that the tower overlooking the escape had not actually been manned at all due to cost-cutting. The Attorney-General said this was nonsense and the Superintendent of the prison, Mr O'Kelly, said an armed officer had indeed been in the tower. He'd been asked to explain why he'd witnessed the escape but not fired a shot. Altogether, five officers, including two from the towers, were called to front the Public Service Board the following week to explain their apparent failures of duty during the escape. On the night of 18 October, 11 days after the escape, Simmons and Newcomb made a break for it. Leaving the showground, they stole a car in Waverley and drove it up to Mona vale, where they abandoned it in a ditch. Then they broke into a delicatessen and gorged themselves on continental sausages and chocolate. They also stole a transistor radio from an electrical goods store. More than 250 police armed with machine guns and tear gas ringed an area of bushland where it was believed the men were now hiding. Householders were advised to stay indoors as police stopped cars and searched the area. The search continued to grip the public imagination and provide front page news most days. Sydney was a smaller and a simpler place then, and this was the biggest story of the time. Three leading clergymen made a public radio appeal for the pair to surrender. Four of the five Long Bay officers were charged by the Public Service Board with misconduct or neglect of duty. Robert Askin, leader of the opposition, said the government had placed too much emphasis on rehabilitation and not enough on security. He claimed the government was making a scapegoat of the officers. He said, Much is being made of the fact that the officer in the tower did not fire a shot. This tower is between 350 and 400 yards from the path taken by the two escapees. The officer saw the two men, but was naturally hesitant to fire on them. He could not be certain that in firing at them, he was doing the right thing. Askin asked why Simmons had not been in maximum security and called for a public inquiry into the whole prison system. Newcomb eventually became separated from Simmons and returned to the showground. On 23 October, he went out to find food and stole a Holton car in Bondi at 9pm while its owner was in a shop. When she came out and saw a car disappearing towards the city, she ran back inside and got the proprietor to call the police. Enterprising cops now set up a roadblock in Oxford Street, Paddington, near Centennial Park, and Simmons drove right into it. As the police raced up to the vehicle, he raised his hands and made no attempt to escape. He looked thin and was weak from lack of food. I'm pleased it's over, he told police. I'm pretty hungry. A fortnight later, on 6 November, Simmons emerged near Coal and Candle Creek in Cringai Chase National Park, a park ranger and boat shed worker were driving towards Commodore Heights along a dirt road at 4 p.m. when they came upon a man digging a hole off the road. When they stopped to investigate, the man produced Cecil Mills' .38 revolver and said, I'm Simmons. He told them he'd been thinking of hiding a caravan in the hole when it was finished. Then he proceeded to tie them up and drove off in the ranger's ute. Police poured into the area, led by Sydney's most famous investigator, Detective Sergeant Ray Kelly. The next morning simmons stole another car and got out of sydney and then crashed through a police roadblock near wyong he was chased by a police motorcycle rider for six miles when he abandoned his vehicle and disappeared into heavy scrub still carrying the revolver by now there were reportedly 500 police involved in the search and the army had provided a mobile field kitchen tents and stretchers for weary searchers needing a few hours sleep the weather was wet the country atrocious There's plenty of leeches as long as your finger. Simmons covered long stretches of rough country on foot, breaking into empty farmhouses for supplies. By this point he'd become something of a celebrity, with a schoolgirl even setting up a fan club for him. He'd now been on the run for a month. Finally, on the morning of 16 November, he was recaptured. Three people phoned police at 5am to say they'd seen him in Curry Curry. A police party headed by Ray Kelly rushed to the location and they saw a number of horses in a field. They'd obviously been startled by something and they were staring at some bushes. Kelly and his team pulled their guns and walked towards the bushes where they found their quarry. Simmons put his hands up and surrendered. Apparently he'd lost Cecil Mill's weapon while swimming a creek. He was dressed in a woman's faded brown sweater and old trousers. He had no shoes, just two pairs of socks. He was tired starving and filthy his feet bruised and lacerated his face was bearded and smeared with charcoal after a wash and a meal at curry curry police station simmons was provided with clean clothes and marched through a crowd of hundreds of local sightseers smiling at one woman after she said something to him later that day he was taken from sydney's criminal investigation branch headquarters to central court 500 sightseers stood outside the CIB, while office girls hung out of the windows of buildings and cheered the shoeless Simmons. Women called out, We've been waiting to see you, Kevin boy, but the police won't give us a go, and you'll do us, Kevin. One of the police called in to clear the crowd said to them, If I had some peanuts, I'd throw them at you monkeys. The Workers' Compensation Commission awarded Cecil Mills' widow £4,000, the highest amount possible for a death. Following the official investigation of the escape, one officer was dismissed and the appointment of another, who'd been on probation, was annulled. Two others were severely reprimanded. The Governor of Long Bay was removed from his position. The trial of Simmons and Newcombe opened on 15 March and took just two days. Trials were a lot quicker then. The men admitted to killing Cecil Mills, but said it was an accident. The jury accepted this, amazingly, and only found the men guilty of manslaughter. This meant that they had killed Cecil Mills, but they'd not intended to, and had not shown reckless indifference to human life. The judge, Justice McClemmons, was clearly unhappy with the result. He noted, Some
1: silly people in this community have had a lot of maudlin sympathy for Simmons and Newcomb. Warder Mills, like every other member of the community, had a God-given right to live his life protected by the law. Justice is demanded to the memory of other warders who have been killed or injured in the execution of their duty.
0: Their act of manslaughter was the worst he'd known and differed little from murder. He went on,
1: This is not the only killing of a warder on duty by convicts that has happened, and I propose to impose a sentence that will. As far as I can affect that purpose, be a deterrent to any prisoner who may be tempted to believe that he can offer physical violence to those whose duty it is to retain him.
0: He sentenced him to life noting that this usually meant 20 years in prison, but he did not intend that Simmons or Newcomb should get out after 20 years.
1: To do that would be unjust to every man, woman and child in this community and it would be unjust to the dead body of water mills lying in that river of his own blood.
0: Simmons and Newcomb appealed their life sentences. Simmons' appeal was dismissed. Newcomb's sentence was reduced to 15 years. Both men were sent to Grafton Prison, known as Australia's Alcatraz. On reception, they were stripped naked and savagely beaten with rubber batons. They were placed, along with Darcy Dugan, in the section set aside for about 10 so-called intractable inmates. This was, in effect, the hardest prison in the state. Another of the intractables was Moody, imprisoned for killing water Alan Cooper at Bathurst, in 1958. According to a journalist who observed the intractables' exercise time two years later, Six paces forward they went, then a quick about turn, six paces back. Hands clasped behind their back, always looking down and to the front. They walked like captive animals, two groups of three and one of four, in barred areas probably no larger than the average kitchen. One wonders why there should be places like this in a civilised community. The level of violence from the waters was continual. Les Newcombe later wrote that in all the time he spent at Grafton, he never went more than a week without being bashed. There is plenty of evidence to indicate this might well be true, including the report of the Nagel Royal Commission in the 1970s. Senior officers of the department were aware of what went on at Grafton and tolerated it. After about seven years, Simmons cracked up and lashed out at fellow inmates. According to the Australian Dictionary of Biography by this stage the violence and other ill treatment had reduced him to a shuffling, vacant-eyed mumbler who burned his eyes with cigarettes. In November 1966, the Comptroller General of Prisons visited for the purpose of determining if inmates could be transferred out of Grafton where it was actually very unusual to keep them for so long, but he refused to move Simmons or Newcombe. In the early morning of 4 November 1966, Kevin Simmons was found hanged in his cell. He'd used blankets tied to the bars of his window. Within six months, Newcomb and Buller and Moody were moved to other prisons. Les Newcomb was released on parole in 1970 and later wrote a book about his experience with Simmons. It's noteworthy because he didn't accept any responsibility for the murder he committed, instead, writing that circumstances had played an ace that night and three frightened men had done the rest. Yewcombe didn't even have the decency to name Cecil Mills the man whose life he'd taken. Let's name him here again and also name the other Corrective Services officers in New South Wales who've died in the line of duty. Henry Kingsmill Abbott, Parramatta, 1842. Thomas Craig, Berrimer, 1862. John Carroll, Braidwood, 1867. George Spinks at Windsor in 1869. John Sutherland Brown, Cootamundra, 1908, Alan Cooper at Bathurst 1958, Albert Hedges at Berrimer 1959, and Cecil Mills at Emu Plains also 1959, Willie Carl Faber at Parramatta 1978, John Colin Mewburn Long Bay 1979, Jeffrey Pierce OAM who died in 1997 as a result of an attack at Long Bay and Wayne Harold Smith, who died in 2007, as a result of an attack at Silverwater. Their memories live on.